You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, this City Lights event will uh, be performed relentlessly and without a break. So I'll give you a heads up on that. That was a Sam Shepard joke. If anybody got that, thank you. Yeah. Uh, on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the foundation, we'd like to welcome you all to our reading and discussion. And let's give a warm welcome to Robert Greenfield. We'll be discussing True Rest, the biography of Sam Shepard's life, work, and times. Um, as is customary uh, before all of our events, we'd like to acknowledge that we are um, having this event on unceded uh, grounds of the Ohlone people. And um, this is uh, something we like to do before every event. Um, and we'd like to take the acknowledge, we have to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Um, so tonight we're celebrating the publication of this new book. It's great. I uh, read it. Um, <laughs> it did. Uh, Mr. Greenfield, uh, from 1970 to 1972, was employed as an associate editor of Rolling Stone's London Bureau. He has interviewed numerous musicians and writers, including uh, Jack Bruce, Bruce, John Cale, Neil Young, Elton John, Nico, and Rolling Stones, also Leon Russell. His previous biographies include Bill Graham Presents, My Life Inside Rock and Roll and Out, Dark Star, an oral biography of Jerry Garcia, and Exo on Main Street, A Season in Hell with the Rolling Stones. In 2000, he had a one-man play called Bill Graham Presents, and it ran at the Cannon Theater in Los Angeles. I'd like to welcome, or I'd like all of you to welcome, Mr. Robert Greenfield. Thank you. I hope you feel about me that way when I'm done, but we'll all find out. So, many, many years ago, I, I was in Paris, and I was in Paris with a woman I had met a month and a half earlier, with whom I was truly, deeply, madly in love, which, when you think about it, is really the only way to be in Paris. And we were staying in this unbearably hip little hotel on the Ile de la Cité, right next to Notre Dame. And we went out for a walk and I, I saw this bookstore and there was no sign in the window, no name over the door. I said, hey, let's go inside. So we both went inside and I was in the back room and I was taking books off the shelf and I was in there for 20 minutes and all of a sudden it hit me, oh my God. This is Shakespeare and Company. Sylvia Beach, Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, James Joyce. So tonight I know where I am. City Lights. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac. Four years after we were in Paris together, this woman and I were married on an island off the coast of Maine, no less. And the first place I took her on our honeymoon was Jack Kerouac's grave in Lowell, Massachusetts. Kind of a really romantic thing to do. And unbeknownst to me at that time, three years earlier, Sam Shepard had been there, but because he was Sam Shepard, and I'm not, he was there with Allen Ginsberg and Bob Dylan on what I can only call the mega iconic Rolling Thunder tour in 1975. And the photograph of Dylan 
and Sam in the book was taken by Ken Reagan, a great friend of mine who's no longer with us. So what makes tonight even that much more resonant for me is that City Lights published Motel Chronicles, Sam's second collection of short fiction, prose, quasi-memoir, poetry, basically anything that came through his brain that was not a play. And in this room, which does not look at all the way I had imagined it would, I thought it would be downstairs, I don't know why, uh, Sam read from Motel Chronicles along with his son, Jesse Mojo Shepherd, a middle name my parents didn't consider giving me. Can't imagine why. Could have been the bar mitzvah invitation. You know, would have looked a little strange. And they, uh, Jesse, Jesse had just thank you, Jesse, Jesse had just published a book of his own short stories. And so Sam read from his book, Jesse read from his book, and for Sam, that was a great night. So if you haven't been able to tell already, my son is here tonight, and my daughter and my son-in-law are watching on Zoom, I'm hoping. And so for me, this is a great night, because sometimes, and I think this is one of the things that in the book, it all does go around in very large concentric circles, okay? And sometimes it doesn't. In any event, Bob, what about Sam Shepard? It's funny you should ask because it took me four years and I still can't answer that question. And I really don't think anybody could answer that question because Sam was not someone who seems to have understood himself. And I don't know if anyone else ever understood him. So I am gonna tell you some things about Sam and you can come to your own conclusion, which is the way it should be. Um, he was different from other artists who were plugged directly into what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. And the three I would name here would be Picasso, Bob Dylan, and Miles Davis. Not a bad power trio, if you think about it almost like cream, kind of, in any event. So they were all guided missiles. They were one-to-one -one with themselves because they didn't understand the source of their art because it came right through them. You either accepted them for what they were or you didn't and they didn't care. And Sam was not like that. Uh, in his letters, which I consider to be really literate and brilliant, and astonishingly, astonishingly to me, I spoke to the professor in Texas who edited the book and put it all together. And as he said to me, Bob, very little crossing out. Now, I can't write a sentence without starting to rewrite it, okay? And for Sam, this book was first person, uh, state of the art, the voice that was his own, okay? And in the book, he's constantly saying in these letters, why am I like this? Why do I keep doing the same things over and over again? Well, the alcoholism didn't help. And he came by it genetically. His, his grandfather, whom he went to visit when he was 16 years old, 
who lived on a farm in really rural Illinois, uh, was the model for the character Dodge and Buried Child, the play, the first off-off-Broadway play to ever win a Pulitzer Prize, a big moment in theater in New York. And he basically sat on a couch and drank Muscatel all day. And I hope you've never had to drink Muscatel, okay? And so his, right, his grandfather, his father was a grievous alcoholic. And left the family when Sam was about 17, left his wife, Sam's mother, left Sam and left Sam's two sisters. The father was the sacred wound. Sam never got over this, and he wrote about it constantly. He wrote about it in Buried Child. He wrote about it in Fool for Love. He wrote about it in the late Henry Moss. More tellingly, he wrote specifically uh, what, what actually what became a list of everything he had done to be different than his father. He had changed his name. Father's name was Samuel Rogers. He called himself Sam Shepard. He, he wouldn't listen to the music his father listened to. It's on and on and on and on. And yet, when I spoke to his older sister, Sandy, who was a talented country and Western singer-songwriter who composed the music for the film version of Fool for Love, she said she'd be with Sam, and sometimes he would look at her and say, it's the old man, meaning he continued to be haunted by the ghost of his father. Having said that, and this is another one of those contradictions where everything you say about Sam Shepard, the opposite seems to be true. He was a very good son. He was a good son to his mother. He was a good son to his father, whom he tried to reconcile with more than once, and it was impossible. His father was so far gone at that point, had been kind of a war hero, and then just threw his life away, basically. Um, he was a really good brother to his sisters, and they were with him as he died from ALS. They lived with him, and they cared for him. He, w he was married once, and I'm not going to rate him as a husband. You know, uh, he left his wife, Olan, Olan Jones, who was an actress who'd been in a lot of his plays to that point in time. He left her and his son, Jesse, when Jesse was young, about 13 years old. So this was exactly what Sam's father had done to him. And it was exactly what her father had done to her, abandoned her and her sister and her mother. I don't know if you can excuse this behavior, but he was... <laughs> truly madly deeply in love with Jessica Lang. They'd been having an incredibly passionate public affair in Los Angeles. But more importantly, I think, in terms of his own motivation, he saw her as his only chance at happiness. Now, how that worked out, that's another place I can't go. They were together for 28 years. They had two children, Hannah and Walker, and Sam was a really good father, not only to those children, but also to Jesse, and his son, Jesse, was there at the end for him. So it, it's a life that's hard to explain. The other, I would say, major relationship in his life with a woman was Patti Smith. And um, well, here's how we met Patti. Let's start from the beginning, which is the scene on the Lower East Side, for reasons, well, it has to do with the fact that as you get older, the pyramid gets smaller as you ascend to the top. 
and you're not coming back down again. And so it is as though you almost know everybody, uh, or at least everybody that you knew from where you're supposed to have known them. And, and I was in all the places that Sam was at the same time. I, don't, I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't following him, I wasn't tracking him, but I was in New York when he was in New York. I was in London when he was in London. I lived in NorCal when he lived in Marin. Then he was in Santa Fe and Charlottesville. And then he was in his horse farm in Kentucky. Having said that, so the scene on the Lower East Side in the early 70s has become incredibly romanticized, basically because of Just Kids, Patty's writing. Um, it really wasn't like that. You know, this is an awful thing to say, but it, when you walked into the Chelsea Hotel, it smelled really badly, okay? And, and these people were all trying to make it. They were really driven. Um, there was no such thing as the hippie movement in New York at that point in time. Drug of choice, Sam's drug of choice was methadrine. It was pretty speed driven. So Sam comes to New York uh, by bus. I'll be reading this briefly for you. And the only person he knows in New York, bizarrely enough, is Charles Mingus's son, Charles Mingus III, who for reasons that defy comprehension, went to high school with Sam in Duarte, which was then really, really isolated. The main street was Route 66, hard to get more American than that, like Bob's Big Boy and Hot Rods and Inland Empire, California. So Mingus III, <laughs> who is brilliant in some ways and maddening in others, um, Sam and Mingus start sharing an apartment that near Tompkins Square Park and having been there, it was so dire. It was really dangerous and nervous making in that area. And Sam begins working along with Mingus III as a busboy at the Village Gate, which was the hip club in Greenwich Village and everybody, everybody appeared there. So six months later, this is Sam Shepard Karma, Sam has become the drummer in the Holy Modal Rounders, probably the worst band of the 60s. I don't think it's a competition. I mean, they had one song on the soundtrack of Easy Rider, and the only musician in the group was a really lovely human being who's still with us, Peter Stamphill. He could really play. So at that point, Patty, I don't know her, but first name basis, always. Uh, she is trying to become a rock journalist. That's how early it is. She gets in touch with Stamphill. She's coming to the show at the Village Gate to do an article about him that she says she'll sell to Crawdaddy, Rolling Stone, something. So Stanfield thinks, oh, this is really good. So her date that night is Tom Rundgren. He brings her to the gate. And for reasons that, you know, <laughs> escape my knowledge, Sam has written a song. He wrote songs to me, probably, probably the first song he ever wrote. It's called Blind Rage. Perfect title. And my son would know this. Actually, he would know it because the sound guy, small circles, big circles, the sound guy at the Village Gay was Chipmunk, who was on Stone's tours and the voice of Woodstock. And Chip lived next door in a rat-infested apartment, and he had an IBM Selectric typewriter. And those of a certain age would know that this was the preeminent writing. It had a ball that you could type 4,000 words. Of, no, no. 90 words a minute if you were able, you know. 
And so there was this songwriter that Chip kind of didn't really know, but he was, you know, Chip was, had this kind of vibe. And, and so Chip was next door in the gate, lighting the curtain until two in the morning. And the songwriter said, hey, can I come in and use your IBM Selectric? There weren't a lot of them, they were very expensive. Chip said, yeah, sure, fine. So this went on for a while. And then Chip expressed an interest in, you know, reading the guy's lyrics. And the guy said, you know what? You can read them, but I don't want to hear your opinion. And of course, that was Bob Dylan. And he wrote Masters of War while Sam first was bussing, taking the dishes off the tables. Now we're back to the night he meets Patty. So he's behind the drums. And the whole point of this was the drums couldn't have been mic'd. They could have. So you probably couldn't have really heard him that well, a small club. He's playing the drums. And Stanfield turned, he's lost the lyric sheet. He has no idea what the lyrics are. He doesn't know. And he performs this. And then Stanfield said to me, it was the first punk performance in the history of music. Okay. We get it. Theater on some level, very shepherd theater. And the show is over. Here's Stanfield, you know, he's standing, waiting, going to be interviewed. Whoa, big deal. Here comes Patty. She walks right past, goes right to Sam. He tells her his name is Slim Shady. And they start inventing this cosmic world that they live in. He leaves his wife and six-month-old son. They move into a much better room at the Chelsea than she lived in with Mapplethorpe, you know? Sam had money. And you know what? I'm going to do this because it's like if I had a PowerPoint presentation, that would be astonishing. But this is more like show and tell when you were in grade school. I'll quote myself. You've seen what Patty looks like here. And so in the book, I described her as looking as a cross between the slum goddess of the Lower East Side and Cher doing gypsies, tramps, and thieves, okay? And their affair is insane. Now they're living in this room. And Sam says to her one night, why don't we write a play together? And they're drinking and they're pushing the typewriter across. She writes something, he writes something. The name of the play is Cowboy Mouth which is a line in Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, which Dylan wrote in the Chelsea, and the hotel is also where Dylan Thomas died, okay? So now they've got a play, and Sam goes to a producer in New York who's put on his stuff, and he wants Patty, who nobody knows who she is, to play. Producer agrees because he just wants to put on the Shepherd play. So the play is short. You know, back then, the methadrine may have helped, Sam could write a play that took 45 minutes to perform in 45 minutes. He never rewrote whatever came through the brain, that same direct connection to the unconscious. That's what was performed on stage. Fine. Now we have Cowboy Mouth, but it's too short. So they pair it, they make it a double bill, which happened a lot back then on the Lower East Side, off, off Broadway. And the other play is the Sam Shepard play. Gee, what a surprise. And Olan, his wife, who he's abandoned, she's now living in Brooklyn, she's starring in it, and it's directed by the boyfriend she left to marry Sam. Not surprisingly, <laughs> they do one preview performance, and Sam freaks out, shockingly. I mean, the psychodrama finally occurs to him, what he's doing here, you know? It's because the play is just his life. It's him yelling, they're screaming at each other, you made me leave my wife. Okay, and here's Olan, his wife, sitting backstage waiting to go on. Fine. And so he leaves $1,000 in a, in a lot of money in a dresser drawer in their room. 
and he goes to Vermont and he joins the modal rounders just to, and then he reconciles. Okay, so he and Patty do not see each other for I think almost 30 years. She gets in touch with him and they meet and it's never sexual again, but they are the best of friends. And he, he feels like she is his mentor. She, ter she turned him on to the French symbolist poets. I mean, Sam had a year and a half of community college at Mount San Antonio College. I'm not denigrating Mount San Antonio. Back then they were known for their track team. That might say, you know, something to you. Um, so he's completely self-educated. And I mean, she actually was far ahead of him in all of this. Now they have become great friends again. Their children are now old enough to go out with one another. And her daughter's name is Jesse and his son's name is Jesse. Okay. So there is a um, really, I think, interesting uh, documentary about Patty called Dream of Life. And there is a scene, you know, like, you know, the stage scene in the document. Sam just drops in, okay, to her apartment, like with a camera crew there that have pulled focus and everything's perfect, but that's okay. And now they have guitars and he bought her the guitar that she still plays at a pawn shop. And she wrote all her great songs on that guitar. It's a black Gibson, it's a beautiful guitar. And they're playing with each other and they're incredible to watch. They're just so amazing together. And she's telling the story that I just told you about the night that she met him. And she says, you know, I sat there and I watched this and I thought, who the hell is this hillbilly son of a bitch? And Sam just starts to laugh. And so the relation, she was there at the end of his life, which is the point I'm getting to here. Um, okay, so I will just briefly tell you that the older you get, the more you understand the way you go out is also a judgment on your life. And Patty was there. Sam wrote two books while he was dying from ALS. He had lost the use of his hands. He dictated and because of those letters. He was able to dictate stream of consciousness into a tape recorder. She edited both books and he had his sisters there. He had his son, he had his family. Um, in terms of being a writer, not of Sam's stature. To me, it's pretty moving that he absolutely, oh, as a, here's the real point. Died with his boots on, yes. But as his sister said, and she doesn't mince words, you know, he could have been a real asshole, she said. He could have been sitting in that wheelchair complaining. He never said a word, never. And was really debilitated at the end. So briefly, really briefly, going to read to you from the prologue, and then we're going to take questions, we're going to ask questions, we're just going to have fun, yeah? Okay, so the name of the prologue is New York, New York. In the opening scene of the movie of Sam Shepard's life, which he most certainly would have written, directed, and perhaps acted in as well, no doubt portraying his own father, while also possibly contributing several original songs to the soundtrack, a tall, thin, 19-year-old man stares hungrily through the plate glass window of a White Castle in the heart of Times Square as a cook fries hamburgers and sizzling puddles of molten grease on the griddle. Fresh off a bus 
after having spent the past eight months touring the Midwest, South, and New England as part of a repertory company that has been putting on plays like Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Fry's A Sleep of Prisoners, and The Boy with the Cart. That's a big one. In churches and any other venues they could find, he has left his mother, two younger sisters, and father with whom he can no longer get along, 3,000 miles away in California. <laughs> with no money and no prospects and no idea where he will sleep tonight, he is not just a stranger in a very strange land, but also the kind of gangling, awkward country bumpkin who has always come to Manhattan in search of wealth and fame, only to go back home again dismayed and defeated by the city. In 1963, the Times Square in which Sam Shepard stands is much like all of New York City and the rest of the country, still squarely rooted in the 1950s. Although Bob Dylan has already played his historic debut concert at Town Hall, and Andy Warhol is painting multiple images of Marilyn Monroe, America will not really start to change until President John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas on November 22, 1963, just 17 days after Sam Shepard, then still known as Steve Rogers, the nickname he was given by his family, and the surname with which he had been born, turns 20 years old. For what truly dies on that day in Dallas is the gleaming promise of a new frontier, as, a well, as well as a particularly optimistic vision of America. Pretty much before anyone knows what hit them, the seeds of anger and discontent that have for so long lain fallow beneath the surface of everyday life in this country suddenly burst forth into full riotous bloom. It is then that the dream really goes sour and the quote 60s begin in earnest. So what he does is he donates a pint of blood for $5 and he gets to eat that night. And from such humble beginnings, over the course of the next 54 years, Sam Rogers would go on to create an incredibly impressive body of work in theater, film, poetry, and prose, while also inventing more or less from scratch the enduring American legend known as Sam Shepard. And while no one in New York City then even knows who he is, the beginning of his epic journey can best be described by the title of Norman Mailer's account of how John F. Kennedy came to be nominated for president at the 1960 Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles. For insofar as the burgeoning downtown theater scene known as Off-Broadway off is concerned, Superman has in fact just come to the supermarket. Before too long, virtually everyone involved in it will know Sam Shepard's name, as in time will the world as well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was great. Um, one of the things that, that, that kind of surprised me about the book, because I mean, when you think of th Sam Shepard, almost everybody, you think of theater and you think of film, but there's so much music in this book, so much music. So much music. And it, it spans generations. I mean, we have the bop years in the 50s that he was way into. It's crazy about jazz. And we have, I mean, he kind of just follows the evolution of pop music of the last half of the 20th century. Then we have the folk, then we have 
this stuff in the 60s, even some psychedelic stuff going on, and also early punk movement too. So He, he, he was a real scholar of music, and I don't say that lightly because I'm a real scholar of music. You know, my life has been the music. I assume that was a motivating factor for choosing the subject? For what? For choosing the subject of the it's book? Great thing to ask me. No, I had no idea. It was a surprise as well? I had no idea. Sam is responsible. He's the first person, absolutely, to bring rock music to legitimate theater. No one had ever heard this before. And one of the people in the circle he was in, you know, well, Sam is different. He was, was different. He wasn't just an actor. He always had the music. And he'd go on the road with the Holy Mode around us at that point. No one ever bridged. And he kept bringing the music in. He had them on stage playing live. He had them above the stage playing. It's really interesting. Oh, here's what's great about Sam, among many other things. So in the prologue to one of the plays, when it was published, he said, I don't want to be a playwright. Screw that. I want to be a rock star. Okay, great. Welcome to the club, you know. When he goes on the Rolling Thunder tour, and a great friend of mine was on that tour with him. Her name's Chris O'Dell. Jerry knows her well, who's here with us tonight. Sam hates it. He, he can't stay. He, he's not in control of his own life. Well, he was on an insane tour. I mean, you, you picked one to start with, Rolling Thunder. And Joe Baez is on, Joni Mitchell is on the tour. And Sam is with Chris O'Dell. Now he's with Joni. And as she wrote in Coyote, he's got a woman down the hall. He's got a woman back home. He seems to want me anyway. So this is, again, the thing about all of these people, and it just occurred to me recently, even the, especially the Lower East Side, they're living their lives, and as they're living them, the thought is, can I get a song out of this? Is there a poem here? This could be my novel. So you have this like hall of mirrors. They're all interacting with one another, and then you're reading about it. I mean, Joni is adding uh, a stanza to Coyote every night as the affair kind of goes south. So back to the contradictory nature of someone that opposite opposing statements, both are true always. Yeah. yeah. And he worked it into his plays as well. I mean, Fool for Love is that, you know, very specific note about a very specific song that has to open the play, you know, so. Hey, okay, this is, you are, this is something. Sam's, I've, I've had two plays produced. I've written three, I've written plays. Sam's notes before the, his staging notes, the sound in, um, don't help me, in, right, in True West, that's kind of the title of the book. Um, he specifies what the coyote should sound like. He doesn't want this coyote sound. Not the cliche coyote sound. No, right, he wants yeah. the Southern California coyote. Coyote. The, the, the color of the shirt and, and where the sofa is and with the color of the cover on the sofa. The color of the light coming into the window. It's, in, it's incredible, I mean, the specificity is not something, usually the director. I'm gonna vamp on this, oh, I'm the creative genius. He didn't, <laughs> Sam squeezed that. Like, you're gonna do it the way I wrote it or you won't do it. So, yeah. yeah, which is why, and again, you know, I, I don't have to defend him. Um, Ethan Hawke was gonna direct True West with two women, two really good actresses, Martha Plimpton. Yeah, and Sam's, they shut it down because he had written it about men. Did he shut it down because he, how can I tell you why he shut it down? Just was unwilling. The only, oh, he, he shut it down because they're gonna change the language. 
the only thing that we're going to change were the pronouns. And look at the world of pronouns we're living in now. Okay. So. Yeah, very authentic. So speaking of Ethan no, Hawke, right, Ethan Hawke <laughs> Hawk was going to direct it, and when they shut it down, the way and Ethan said it all in this review about how he felt about Sam, he said Sam comes from an older part of the woods. I don't know what that means. Woods. <laughs> I don't know where those woods are. Right, right. Oh, and just like let's illuminate the audience. Like Ethan Hawke just wrote a really great review of this book in the Washington Post today. So if anybody wants to check that out, I haven't got to read it yet. Did you get to read it? Did I read it? It, yeah. it saved my life. Well, yeah, could you take, <laughs> can we have a little uh, a preview of what he was talking about a little bit? Because I, I actually well, it came out of the blue. I did not interview Ethan Hawke for the book. He's a major character. Here's the greatness of Shepard and the, the, the reason it's everlasting. So back in the day, uh, PBS, uh, it could have been American Masters, there is a black and white VHS, which is a word you don't hear a lot, uh, of True West. John Malkovich and Gary Sinise. It's, it's watchable on YouTube. It's astonishing. Malkovich is incomprehensibly great. And this VHS, A, <laughs> influenced this guy in London, who is now the director of the Old Vic. He lived in the middle of nowhere. He watched this. He didn't speak for a week after he'd seen it, okay? And Ethan Hawke was being raised by a, his mother, a single parent. He, he was a teenager in New Jersey. He, she bought it for him. He probably watched it a thousand times, okay? He became an actor because of Shepard's play and Malkovich's performance. And I, I kept finding this everywhere, you know what I mean? People who were so inspired by the brilliance of Shepard. And again, listen, you know, you do this, you're going to take a lot of criticism. The reviews are what they are. And people have pointed out, you know, correctly that I, and even Ethan Hawke said, well, you know, I breezed through their five great family plays. Well, I didn't breeze through them in the first draft. They're undescribable. You can't convey what they're about by summarizing them because Shepard created this alternate reality on stage. He's incredibly influenced by Beckett, two guys sitting in a garbage can talking about the end of the world, right? And it's surreal, and yet within the context of his reality, it's all viable and believable. And then the greatness of him, and this, this is why I give him immense respect, he kept getting better at what he did. He kept working at his craft. He did 12 versions of true. He did, he rewrote, you know, he learned, and he learned so much about the, you know, people don't, again, have, you know, written a couple plays. It's really tough. Like, how do you get this, how do you get them off? You have to have exits and entrances that make sense within the comp, because you don't need to, oh, I, I gotta get that character out of there in this scene. He was so brilliant at the technical aspects of using theater, light and sound. He just got better and better. And those five plays are gonna stand. They will live. Awesome. I think I'm gonna open this up to the crowd now, see if you guys have any questions. Anybody have a question? Okay. Yeah, so were people reluctant to talk to you and um, yeah, how did that go? Was it an uncomfortable no. process? Andrew, it's a great question, bro. And, and thank uh, you, Andrew. Thank you, thank you for asking it. So, you know, none of us are review proof, even in the world we live in, especially those of us who grew up believing that the 
New York Sunday Times book review meant something in the world, you know, sorry about that. But so I had this review in the New York Times where the guy began it by counting how many interviews I had did, done, did, did, done, and then naming all the people who didn't talk to me. Thank you so much. You know. <laughs> thank, thank you for caring, okay? Well, the point is, you know, for I, the first, I began the interview process and this speaks to how young and naive I was. Well, it's not that long ago. I got in touch with Patty, you know, through somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And she had a very fair response, and I respect her madly, as you can tell. She said she would talk to me if the family authorized it. Then the literary executor of the Sam Shepard estate, I was well into it, got in touch with me. And I understand you've been talking to the following people, he said. Well, it was one of those correspondences from London in the 1880s where each response gets more polite, but you're really telling somebody to go fuck themselves, you know what I mean? And, you know, I said, so, you know, thank you. I haven't actually not interviewed those people, but I'm so, anyway, he let me know that the children wouldn't speak to me, which is fine, but they wouldn't stop me. And, and as, when I went into this, I've never not been, the authorized biographer, or the first person to write the biography, Ahmed Erdogan, Bill Graham, even Owsley, Jerry Garcia. There are three existing biographies, but it wasn't that. It was the fact, and I was telling Davin this, is that here's Sam, who had a Greta Garbo period. I want to be alone, you know? And in this period, Woody Allen offered him a script. Woody was at the height of his power. Sam was living in Charlottesville, Virginia on a horse farm with Jessica. He had the script delivered to a hardware store in the next town because he didn't want someone coming up his driveway, okay? So he was insane about his privacy. And yet neither he nor Jessica nor Patty, they never stopped writing, talking, they lived their lives in public. You know, Sam, he didn't want to let people know where he was interviewed, and yet then he would say things that were so contradictory. And the book is basically composed, uh, comes from most of it really, the, the heart of it is Sam's letters, where he didn't censor himself. And then he never shut up for someone who didn't want to be known. He was on the cover of Newsweek, which is right out of the Paul Simon song, Me and Julio. That's my yeah, answer. Okay, so yeah. I would like to know more about his film career post The Right Stuff. I hope that's when I dig at The Right Stuff because I'm a big fan of The Right Stuff, but okay. Chuck Yeager is great because it's all San Francisco. Yeah. All Bay Area, all Magic Theater. It's Sam and Ed Harris getting hammered in Tosca. Right across the street. <laughs> across the street on a constant basis, you know. Um, here's the great irony. This is another Sam Shepard. I'm not making this guy up. Uh, so he's playing the greatest test pilot of all time, correct? Broke mm -hmm. the sound barrier, right? Yeah. Also afraid of flying, by the way. Terrified. <laughs> Sam had not flown for 25 years before he played Chuck Yeager. And he and Chuck got along, I guess. The, you know, Listen, if you see that movie, Philip Kaufman, hell of a director, it stands up. It's an extraordinary cast. Sam was the only one who was nominated, Best Supporting Actor. And the last scene, he comes walking out of the desert after he's 
crashed, crashed burned. <laughs> American hero, the last American hero. After that, and I'll, I'll honor the question, <laughs> Sam did movies for money. Very out front about the baby boom. I like that, you know, Diane Keaton. He did one kind of mainstream romance. He was a romantic lead, you know, as well as doing some serious films. He got better and better as an actor. I would urge you, if you haven't seen it, uh, he was in what I call the hippest Hamlet ever made. He played Ethan Hawke, Ethan is Hamlet. And here Sam is the father. I forgot. That. He's playing the father like he played his own. He's the ghost. Yeah. He's the, so he made 40 movies. And I mean, uh, I'll quote someone else I wrote about, uh, Bert Bacharach, who just passed away, lovely gentleman. He also was horse obsessed. Sam was horse obsessed. And Bert said, the slow horses eat as much as the fast ones. So if you want to get rid of a lot of money on a daily basis, Sam had, you know, just have, just get another horse. He had polo ponies, he had brood mares, he had thoroughbreds, and he, he made himself into this cowboy. His parents were school teachers at very elite schools. He was good at this, so. Okay, so Mark would like to know more about Sam Shepard and his participation with the Magic Theater here in San Francisco. Peter and I, we, we'd all like to know more about this because we wanted to do this event at the Magic Theater. The Magic Theater was the key to Sam's career. John Lyon, who founded it in Berkeley, you know, named after the Steppenwolf reference in, in, in Steppenwolf, the, the uh, forgive me, you know who I mean, right? The reference in Steppenwolf is Magic Theater, all, and to all those who enter you know, the price of admission, your mind. I finally nailed it, okay. So, um, Michael McClure, this, you know what I mean? It's like, am I in City Lights or what? I'm, I'm looking at a Michael McClure poster, okay? So McClure was like the crown prince of the underground here. McClure connected everybody, you know, Janice and Chris Christopherson, you know, one of Mercedes Benz. McClure was, he was it, he was the man. We know this, Peter Smiley, I, we all know this. And McClure met Sam, brought John Lyon to the house, and then Sam and McClure became the playwrights in residence at the Magic Theater. And whatever Sam did what was started at the Magic, four out of the five great plays began there. He had total control, Sam. Lyon was, you know, in thrall of Sam. Most of them moved on. They went to Broadway. They went to New York. The Magic Theater was absolutely key to Sam's career. And, you know, uh, I didn't say this, but someone who shall remain nameless, who wrote in the Chronicle, basically wrote about the fact that the theater scene, it could not exist now. The economics of the world are impossible. The magic is still there and I salute them for being there. I know how hard it is to keep theater going, but Sam, Sam put them on the world map. Okay. okay, so she asks, Philip Seymour Hoffman directed a Sam Shepard play in Sydney, Australia, and do you know, True West specifically. And do you know anything about their relationship? I mean, he, the, him and uh, another actor did that famous, you know. So what's great is my initial answer. I know nothing at all about that. What I do know about is that Matthew Warkus, who was, the name came back to me, the one who was inspired by True West. He came up with the idea of allowing the actors who play the two brothers in the True West to switch roles every night. 
Then when it was first cast and they came to New York, the two brothers were played by Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley. okay? And people who came and saw it one way would say to Warkus, well, I can't imagine it. This is the only way to see it. It doesn't work. The and then they'd come see it and it worked just as well the other way, you know? And the two of them were very close. You know, there's a long story about when Hoffman died and Riley went to the wake and the, the casket was open. And Riley was talking about the fact that every night when, when, when Philip Seymour did this scene, people were screaming with laughter. When Riley did it, nobody even, <laughs> didn't even laugh, you know? And so one night, um, Riley broke character, forbidden, and he turned where he should, he wanted to see what, what Hoffman was doing. And as, after, so actor, he said, you know, to Philip, Philip, you weren't doing anything at all. You were just such a great fucking actor. And so this is what Shepard did. He provided a place where people of talent could go to a level that they had never experienced before. And that play will live. And Ethan Hawke, a year and a half ago, two years ago, did it with Paul Dano. They didn't switch roles because before Shepard passed away, he let Hawke know that he, know that he wanted him to do it, but he wanted it separate. He didn't want the brothers to seem, which is what they are, they're two halves of a single consciousness, which is the essence of Sam. He wanted them separate, and the play ran, it was a great success. I think that's perfect time to close. Okay. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.